Hi, this is Dave, KZ1O, and this is 99hobbies.com. The podcast you are about to listen to is a recording of one of several presentations that were given during the MassCon convention held in Westford, Massachusetts during the weekend of March 12th and 13th, 2010. This podcast, of course, contains only the audio portion of the presentation. A copy of the graphics that we viewed as audience members is available at www.masscon.org and also here at 99hobbies.com. Well, good morning. My name is Dave Segrist. I'm with the New England QRP Club, among other groups. And uh, Bruce and I have the privilege of talking about filters this morning. And I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of this. I'm I have much admiration for Scott's boldness in doing this. Um, it, it was not a small task, and, and so I appreciate him doing it. It's also good to see just many faces I know and friends I've known for a long time, but also see people I've not met before. So I, I'm glad you're here. People have traveled a ways to be here, and in a lot of ways I view that as a responsibility as well, because I, I feel like you're here to hear something, and so I hope I'm, I'm providing Lisa part of it. There are some phenomenal people speaking. What we're going to talk about today, what I'm going to talk about today, and I should use this clicker, is filters. Um, and essentially, I, I have a personal interest in filters from work and just life. Um, and one of my goals is, I hope from this talk, is to remove the mystery. I think often we use programs like LC or, or other programs that will realize a filter for us given some input parameters, but we really don't understand how it works. You put in the numbers, it gives you some inductors and caps, but how do the, where do they come from? Why those? Why not others? Couldn't I use just about any cap I wanted and have it work? So I'm hoping at least to give you a feel for where those things come from, how it works, and then Bruce will bring in the truth. So the first, first half is design, and then the second half, well, then he tries to build it based on the numbers, and when it doesn't work, what do you do? How do you figure it out? What do you adjust? So that's where we're going. Um, we're going to talk a bit about filters, mother, apple pie, this is what a filter is, this is how it works, and then we'll go on to thinking specifically about Allison's favorite band, 40 meters, and a CW uh, filter. And, and if you hear me on the air, where will you hear me? 40 meter CW. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? Okay, so I should go on to the next slide here. So what kind of filters are out there? Well, there are a number of ways of classifying filters, as, as you well know. And one of the first ways is by components. And when I think filters, I'm thinking specifically about electrical filters. But in reality, what these systems, and there really are systems, can be mechanical, they can be springs, they can be dampening of buildings, vibrating, it can be most anything. We tend to think of, of realizing them in electrical ways, and that's what we'll talk about this morning, but broaden your thinking a bit and think about systems and modeling systems, because that's really what this is. Uh, we have active filters, and active filters generally are for audio frequencies, uh, because the size of the components get really, really big at RF. Otherwise, going around an op-amp. And the op-amp generally replaces the inductor, since inductors are hard. 
And we'll talk a bit more about them, but not a lot more. You can do state variables, you can do cell and key topologies, various topologies. Um, but I find them boring, honestly. So I don't do it. You have passive filters. And mostly that's RF. Um, it'll work anywhere, but when I think of passive filters, uh, I think of RF filters and inductors, caps, yada, yada. Crystals for IF and Q. You can do... Uh, soft filters, you can do strip line filters. There's a plethora of filters out there for various frequencies. These are all the components realizing the filters. It, it doesn't say anything really about the design of the filter itself. So you can start with a design, and if you're, I don't know, patient enough, you could implement almost any filter with any of these. It may not be recommended, but you could do it if you want it. So, what really are we talking about then with, with these systems? Well, we're talking about what I think of as, as a description of what I want to come out for something that goes in. And we tend to think of that in terms of a band pass or a stop band, what the characteristics are of those things. We tend to think of the roll-off or the skirt, we tend to think of the phase response, and, and we don't talk about that a lot, but we'll think about that for a little bit. And then finally, complexity and stability, because if you're building a filter and you end up with an oscillator, it's probably not a good thing. Um, and, and fortunately, I've done that. Um, so where do these things come from? Where do they come from? Well, I'll go to a picture, because I like pictures. You can think of uh, most of the filters that we know and love were actually developed by folks who didn't know anything about electronics. Um, they were looking at systems. They were looking at the world and trying to model the systems. So you take somebody like Shebyshev. He was a mathematician, and he developed a series of polynomials that helped him model how systems work. And, and he, in fact, was not thinking about electronics. He was thinking about mechanical kinds of things at that point. Um, and so to describe the model, they developed the polynomials, and it's just an equation to do it. And in fact, the transfer functions for the filters end up looking like that. And those are the things that we know and love and that we use, but these are just descriptions of systems, descriptions of, of how that transfer function works. So we'll talk about it a little bit. So up here, and you can't read it, I know you can't. That's Butterworth, Chebyshev, that's the Type 2 Chebyshev, and Elliptic. And when I think about passband, I, I think about what is the characteristics of the filter in the area where I want my signal to go through. And that's this stuff. So you have Butterworth maximally flat, you've got Ripple, you've got a skirt, so a Chebyshev has a much steeper skirt, but the Elliptic is much, much steeper. Well, what do I get when I do that? Well, I trade things off, of course. Sometimes, if, if I don't care about the skirt, then I'll do Butterworth because it's easier. But if I really care, if I'm doing signal processing, then I want, you know, a 20-state or 30-state. I want something big. And you can do that in DSP, but you give up phase. So, so there are trade-offs in all these things. And finally, you've got the stop in. And what, what is the response in the stop in? So we're going to think a bit about each one of these, but understand that you can implement any of these with any of the components I talked about before. In fact, people implement them with springs 
or again, dampening buildings and earthquakes. It's, it's the same system modeled the same way. We just think about it because we like electronics. That's what we like. But it, it's all, all math. And we won't talk a lot about math, but it is math. Phase response. I just want to talk a little bit about this because um, you'll see often it's, it's described as group delay. And that is in a filter, not all frequencies leave at the same rate. So it's not like, well, I'll, I'll just say that. So if you notice here, for instance, the Chebyshev filter has a very large group delay here. And, and if you look, and it's not shown here, but if, if I had the curve for the passband, the skirt would pretty much follow right here. So as you get close to where your cutoff frequency is, that's where the group delay rate of change is the most. So you can imagine instead of being 10K here, if this was an audio filter at 700 hertz, that between 650 and 750, you're right on this curve, which means that 600 hertz might go through a tenth of a millisecond faster than 700 hertz. The narrower the filter, the steeper the curve, and the difference in the rate of transmission of the audio through it. And I'm thinking here specifically of audio. What does that translate to for us? Well, it's ringing. That, that sense of as you make the filter narrower and narrower, you get this ringing, this echoing sound. Well, it's in particular because of, of the rate of change of this curve. So you, your trade-off is, well, I, I want it narrow, but I don't want to kill my ears after four or five hours. And, and we've all done that. Um, but that's where this comes from. And so if you, if you look at these curves, you've got the maximally flat transfer or group delay, which is the Bessel filter. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But essentially, if, if I'm doing an IQ and I want to delay one phase by 90 degrees, then I'd build a, a Bessel. Uh, if I'm doing a crossover filter for audio work, I'd use a Bessel. Uh, Butterworth has a shallower skirt than a Chebyshev, um, and therefore the group delay is lower. Group delay almost always follows the steepness of the skirt and the number of the order of the filter. Higher the order, steeper the skirt. The sharper the, I'm sorry, the higher the order, the, sheep, the steeper the, the group delay, and the steeper the skirt, the bigger the group delay. So they, they kind of follow, and we'll talk about more in a minute. But the thing to remember is the narrower your filter, the closer you're going to get to this curve. And as you've experienced already, the more echo. So you might choose a different realization of your filter to get something that has less ringing. The, the other thing to be aware of, by the way, is if you go to the literature, they'll often, and I'll go back a slide to talk about this, they'll often talk about ringing. And when they're talking about ringing, they're talking about the damping of the signal after you get an impulse. So these are almost always uh, finite impulse realizations, FIRs, not, the, uh, not an infinite. And they want to know how long does it take this to damp. So, so if you start looking for ringing, they're not talking about what you're talking about. They're talking about, about this stuff. I find it confusing. They should talk about what I talk about. <laughs> so so we have, we have 
components. We have, this is how I build the filter, but it doesn't say anything about the design. We have the design, which is, this is the mathematical transfer function I'm using to create, to model my system, and it happens to fall out to names we love and know, but it, it doesn't say anything about the, about the components. And then finally, we have topologies. Um, and topologies is just a way of, again, of modeling stages. And so for an active filter, often people will use Salon Key. Salon Key is not a filter. And, and it annoys me to tears. People will argue about that. But it isn't. You can implement almost any all-pole filter with a Salon Key topology. What, what do I mean by pole? Um, a transfer function will have, if you think about just math, it has a numerator and a denominator. And so uh, I'll even back a little bit farther than that. The, as, as I model a system, in our world, we're, we're going to use something called the Laplace transform. You guys don't care. It, it's a way of modeling things um, in a three-tuple. So it, it has the real imaginary part of the phase and the frequency, the magnitude of the frequency. And it's really hard to visualize that in three space. So you can do it in two space if you do something like a Fourier transform, which is a continuous way. But if you go to something that varies with time, which is what we're dealing with with audio, it, it ends up being very complex. So these guys, smarter than I am, develop this idea of poles and zeros. And, and it's a way of, of viewing the world and deciding if your filter is going to be stable, um, easily visualizing it. And so the way they did that, uh, the zero of the filter is any place that the transfer function goes to zero, and the pole of the filter is any place the transfer function, um, the pole goes to infinity. Um, and you can plot it at any time you're on the unit circle or inside on, on these little diagrams. Um, you're stable in general, or to the left-hand side. And any time that the zeros go beyond it the other way, then you're in trouble. And so Salon Key, all I have to say, Salon Key is an all-pole filter. You cannot model zeros with it, but you could do Butterworth, you could do Chebyshev, you could do Bessel. You can't do elliptic filters. They have zeros in them. You can't do the inverse Chebyshev. They have zeros. But you can do lots of stuff. And mostly what we do, you could model. So if, if you want to use Salon Key and... And in particular, if you're doing audio, that works well. If you're doing RF, the size of the components, particularly the caps, gets big and not so good. But, again, if you're really patient, you could do it. It's, it's all up to you. What we mostly deal with is the Cower topology, which is this. It's what we know and love for our RF filters. I should look at my notes, by the way. Um, and we're going to talk about, in a minute, a low-pass RF filter. But essentially, it's, it's uh, cap, inductor, cap, inductor, or it could be inductor, cap, inductor, cap. Why would you want to do one or the other? Well, if your load is significantly larger than your source impedance, then the source impedance appears as a short in the system. And if you have a short in parallel with a shunt capacitance, the shunt capacitance has no effect. So if you have a low impedance on the input and a high impedance on the output, you want to start with a series inductor. Conversely, if you have a high impedance on the input and a low impedance on the output, then you want to start with the shunt cap because a series inductor 
won't do any good either. It, it's just a way of modeling. Um, most everything we do, we're going to talk about um, load and source impedances being the same, um, just because it makes everything easier. The math, it, it, it's doable, but it's a trick. But you'll find these lots of places. And in fact, most of the output filters on most of our radios are low-pass cower filters. And they're sometimes Butterworth, but in general, they're Chevy Chevy just because the characteristics of the transfer function are what we want. So, so you can define filters by components. You can define filters by the transfer function. Or you can define filters by topology. And there's lots of other topologies out there, by the way, too. And lots of other transfer functions. And there, if you want to get a PhD, you could write your own and become famous. I do not. So... What are the types of filters that, that we actually look at? What are some specific designs? Well, the first one was this, this mathematician fellow who was British who was involved pretty much post-First World War and then into the Second World War, and that's Butterworth. And Butterworth's claim to fame is in the passband, it's maximally flat, and what you trade off to get that is that the roll-off is slow. It's got a slow roll-off. And what do I mean? Well, for each of these orders, that's an order one, order two, order three, order four, they all go through the three deeply point at the same spot, but these curves are slow coming down um, as compared to Chebyshev or elliptic. Elliptic and Chebyshev will have a steeper curve, but they won't be flat. Why would I want to do this? Well, if I have an audio filter... I want this to be flat. So if I go from three, from 600 hertz to 700 hertz to 750 hertz, I don't want it to change. I want, I want the, the, the gain to be constant across the filter. The other good thing about Butterworth is that these curves are pretty constant. And in particular, around the cutoff frequency, um, other filter designs... It, it's much harder to describe what's going on in this region. And, and we'll look at another filter in a minute to see that. But this works very well, and it's easy to do, and it's uh, all pull, no zeros, so it's uh, remarkably stable, and you could easily do this. Note that, that these are all described, not all, but usually described in the literature in uh, radians per second um, instead of frequency. Now, a radian, if you think of a circle, a circle is two pi radians. Um, it's just a way of, of, of thinking about this stuff. Um, and the reason that's helpful is because X sub L is two pi FL. And futzing with two pi all the time is a pain. So radian is also one over two pi. And so X sub L becomes the cutoff frequency times the inductance, omega L. And X sub C is... C over, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not going to even say it. X of L is uh, omega L. It, it just makes the math easier in, in dealing with radians. So Butterworth, maximally flat, generally used for audio. They all go through the same 3dp point, um, and that's because with each order, well, the transfer function just works that way, um, and it's very well defined. And, and it works fairly well. You could build this easily. Um, and the ringing is good, by the way. So if you think back to that phase diagram, 
the phase for Butterworth near the cutoff point, near this region, it is not all that significant. So the rigging is not, for instance, as significant as elliptic, which would be impossible to use, or Chebyshev, which is okay, but not nearly as good. Which brings me to, uh, I love this guy. This guy is Pafnudi Lovovich Chebyshev. And I show you the picture because I love the beer. <laughs> he also sold cough drops. <laughs> He was the father of Russian mathematics. He knew nothing about electronics, but he did develop a series of polynomials, and the polynomials were used to solve the system of equations that became Chebyshev filters as we know them. But he didn't care about filters. He was thinking about modeling this stuff. <coughs> um, and so we just know the name. And there's about 27 different ways to spell the name because it, they translate it from Russian to English and... So I choose this way. Uh, oh, too far. So a Chebyshev has ripple in the passband, and this is the type 1. We'll talk about type 2 in a minute, briefly. Um, the gain is described by, uh, there's actually more than this. You, you've got the ripple factor, you've got the polynomial, and then you've got the cutoff, and they're not shown here. This, this was stolen from the web, by the way, like all good presentations. Um, and the, the ripple you decide. Um, note that this curve is not a straight line like the Butterworth was. And sometimes it, it goes out, and sometimes it comes in. And the closer you get to the cutoff frequency, the harder it is to define that curve. And where that matters is, again, if you're trying to build a narrow filter, you really care about, near your cutoff frequency, what's going on outside of it. Um, as you get farther away from the cutoff, you get back to 6 dB per, per uh, octave, um, per order of filter. So if you have a three order, it's 18 dB per, per octave, and et cetera. Why would I want to use this? Well, at RF, I don't really care too much what's going on in this region because that frequency is not going to change. I'm going to be on 7004 <coughs> because I love 40CW, and that's not going to move, or 7040 or 7060, depending on if my amplifier is on or not. Uh, <laughs> but you don't care, because if, if you lose 0.2 dB or gain 0.1 dB, it's not a big deal. But what you do care is the, the steepness of the, of the skirt. And that's what Chebyshev gives you. It gives you a much steeper skirt. The trade-off is the phase response is awful. And so if, if, if you're trying to listen to it audio-wise, um, you can. But if you built an audio filter like this, it would ring like the Dickens, and you'd be very unhappy. Uh, the other thing to notice, it's a log scale. So this thing actually goes out over here much, much farther. This is, this is linear, and that's, that's log. So that's Chebyshev, and then the, finally the third, third one is, is Bessel. And uh, he was another mathematician that came up with another set of uh, polynomials for solving yet another system of things he was looking at. Um, and this is maximally flat group delay, and that's to minimize phase distortion. So you would get none of that ringing at all, but the, the slope of it is awful. The slope just, I don't have a, do I have a graph? I don't even know if I have a graph. I don't. I had one earlier. Well, I, I've got the phase delay. The group delay. I don't really. 
and this is what you really care about. Again, if you're going to be building an, uh, a quadrature kind of receiver, um, then you can delay the cue by 90 degrees using a Bessel filter. It won't change the characteristics of the signal. Um, everything goes through at the same rate, um, and you're happy. Uh, a Butterworth will, will give you about 90 degrees at, at a, uh, the cutoff frequency, omega sub C. Um, but the phase delay is not always great, and so you might end up with some distortion there. Um, and again, uh, a Bessel filter, uh, if you're doing crossover filters and that sort of thing in audio work, they almost always have, have Bessel filters. So filters, you can have components. You have to choose what frequency am I working at? Do I want to do something active? Do I want it passive? You can choose the design. Do I want maximally flat in the passband? Do I care about the passband? Do I care about the skirt? Do I care about the, the group delay, audio distortion at all? Um, how, many, how many stages do I want? And we'll talk about the order in a minute. Um, these are all trade-offs uh, that, that you'd have to make. And it's all based on, again, a transfer function. And I, I encourage you to pick up a book. Wider has a book, Stephen Wider, on filters that I, I think is very good. And he explains group delays very well. Um, the fellow who is my advisor, uh, Dr. Holzman, also has a book that's a little more, more money, and he even goes into greater depth, and he will put you to sleep rather quickly. Wake up. Greg is, Greg is over here snoring. So what are we going to do? Well, I, again, I'm interested in taking something like Elsie and understanding where those things came from, how it works. So we're going to think about a normalized filter, Designing, essentially, a 40-meter filter. Passive. We're going to talk about the order. We'll pick a realization. We'll denormalize it. And then Bruce is going to build it. How am I doing for time, by the way, Bruce? Oh, i got to go. <laughs> He's supposed to be paying attention to time. Okay, so if you look in the literature again, most often they're going to talk about normalized filters. If you, if you remember from the handbooks from years ago, back in the back they had these huge tables with, with all these numbers, and if you took the numbers and played with them, you could get a filter out of them. Well, those tables were all for normalized filters, and that was omega sub C of one radiant per second. Or sometimes it was one hertz if, if they weren't so good. But generally it was for one radiant per second. Um, and that is so that you could you decide on the filter you wanted based on the transfer function, and then translate that to the frequency that you wanted and to the load that you wanted. Um, and so normalized, well, in fact, don't worry. It's easy to do to the transition, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But just know that what you're dealing with is always a normalized design. It assumes the load and source impedance is 1 ohm, real world, and that you're at uh, 0.159 hertz. And then we'll make it into something else. So first, what order do I need? Well, what do I mean by order? Well, the order is the number of caps or inductors in a passive design, or if you're doing Salon key, Salon key is always order two per stage. So you have to decide the number of stages you need to get the skirt that you want. How sharp or not sharp do I want this cutoff to be? We're talking, by the way, low pass, but you could easily implement these as high pass. Band pass is a little more complicated because you have tuned components. It's much like uh, an elliptic uh, filter, which also has tuned components, and the complexity gets gets more, and, and in fact, the stability also becomes a trick. Um, and there are lots of very clever formulas that you could use to figure out what roll-off you want. 
But I find it much easier just to go to a plot and, and try to figure it out. So some things to, the, the, this is not apples and oranges, by the way, and, and I, I apologize. Um, this is a Chevy Chev. This is a Butterworth. This is a log scale. This is linear. Um, so it's not apples to apples. So when you look at it, kind of keep that in mind. But if I look at, at order two and coming down, I can't even read it over there now. But the point of, of this is that for a, a two-pole, this guy, um, getting to 10 dB down is much faster than this guy, which would be over here somewhere. All it says is that I, I have to side on... I'm not doing this well, by the way. So if I'm at 1 kilohertz, and I want to be 30 dB down on 2 kilohertz, what, what order filter of Chevy Chef do I want? And the answer is, if I'm at 1 kilohertz here, so I, I just take this 1, and instead of being 1 radian per second, I'm going to normalize it someday to 1 kilohertz, but the curve is not going to change. I, if I start here and I say at 2 kilohertz I want to be 20 dB down, well, if I'm in order 1 or, or 2 pole here, I, it won't work. I'll only be about 4 dB down. Um, on the 3, I'll be about 10 dB down. It's only when I get to the 4 pole, order 4, that I'll be 20 dB down. So the curve allows you to just estimate how many, what order you want this thing to be to get to uh, the dB down. Now the reason, again, this works for poles is, again, Chebyshev is an all-pole filter. There's no zeros. Um, and so you can translate that pretty reasonably into the order. And the same is true of a Butterworth. And, in fact, that's the type 1 Chevy Chef and the Butterworth are all pull. And, again, they're, they're very stable. They won't, they won't oscillate usually unless you're really, really not good at it like I am sometimes. So, and that, that's a Butterworth. Steeper, not so steep. I wouldn't, there are formulas out there, and if you're really gung-ho, you can get the formulas. But I would just use a plot. So we're going to do a Chevy Chef filter. We can tolerate 2 dB ripple. And point two. Point, two. point 2, yes, point 2. Well, you could tolerate 2 dB2 if you've got an amp, but point, point 2 is better. Um, I was thinking of something. Oh, the, in a Chevy Chef, more stages, higher the ripple, more ripples. Uh, so order n, as n gets higher, the, the number of ripples becomes more, and the characteristic of those ripples closer to the cutoff frequency becomes a little funnier. So you want, you want to just look at those, and, and there are plots on the web, and, and in Widener's book and, and Dr. Holzman's book, you can find that. Yeah, you decide on an order, and this is 20 meters. <laughs> huh, I didn't do 40 meters. Look at that. It's a 20-meter filter. And now we're going to go to the tables. Well, what do I mean go to the tables? Well, if you remember these tables from, from the handbooks, these tables fall out from the transfer functions that we talked about, which came from modeling the system and the poles and the zeros. Um, and this is Shebyshev, so it, it's just numbers. The thing to note about these is that on the odd ones, there's symmetry, 1 1.22, 1.22, 1.395, 1.3395, 1.3395, 3370. If you look at the even ones, there's the equal number of things here, and they're not symmetrical. And that becomes a real pain to, to try and build. 
you end up with an extra stage. You really, for Chevy Chef, don't want to do that. You really want to stay with an odd order because life, in particular with either passive or uh, selling key, is much easier. Um, so just it's just a rule to live with. And this I stole from there, um, and that's in the handout someplace. So I'm going to do fifth order based on where it was in the slope. And, and there's the picture. Okay, so the picture didn't show up, but uh, it's supposed to be there. So now I have, I now have these numbers, and these numbers are for a one radian per second source impedance, load impedance, one ohm. And now I want to change that to, in my world, 50 ohms and 14.2 megahertz. So again, to go from the prototype inductance to the real-world inductance for frequency, I need to change omega to f. And going to f from omega means multiplying by my real frequency, the cutoff, and multiplying by 2 pi. To go to the capacitance is, I'm sorry, not multiply, but divide. And that's just transforming it from uh, a cutoff, a formula for 1 radian per second to my real frequency. And so if this was 1.3995, and if, if we look again... Can I do this? Look at that. So the table 1.3395 was the first capacitor. And so I divide it by 2 pi 14.2, which is my frequency, and uh, 10 megahertz, 10 to the 6. And I ended up with 0.0159 micro microfarads, 1.59 times 10 to the minus 8. The inductance the same way. If we went back to the table, you'd find the number is 1.33. And you're dividing it by 2 pi 14.2 megahertz, and you end up with 0 0.0149 uh, microhenries. It's just a simple transformation of the numbers that came from the poles from the transfer function. That probably is all Greek, but that's where it's coming from. Um, note again that, that again, well, <laughs> note that. If, if you have source and load impedances that are not the same, this becomes much more complex, and I would strongly urge you not to do it. it. It becomes a pain in the butt to try and do the transformation. You can do it. There are formulas. It's not fun. Um, the capacitance, you want to divide the capacitance by the equal source and load. The inductance, you want to multiply. So you take your 1.59015 microhenry or microfarad, divide by 50, and you end up with 301 puff. <coughs> In the inductance, you multiply it out, and you end up with 0.749 microhenries, which are both reasonable. That's the first clue, by the way. If, if, you, if you come up with a filter, <laughs> it is. I've done this. You know, you, you end up with, I won't even tell you the stories. <laughs> the six-henry inductor is not going to work. <laughs> so... What do you end up with? You end up with a, a filter that started from the tables, normalized, and ends up with these components um, with a source and load of 50 ohms. And this is actually from, from Elsie. Elsie, and I'm done now. Bruce, you can start coming up if you like. Elsie just walks through those steps. They, they take the poles and zeros, and they, they manipulate them to build the table. And then they do the normalization that you asked for. You pick your ripple, you pick your order, and they do the crunching. And then you end up with something like this, and hopefully it does. 
exactly what you want. But Bruce is going to tell us why that isn't true. Well, why it's not necessarily true. Um, you want your slice? Thank you, Dave. So Dave, you know, he, he kind of brought us through a lot, of, a lot of theory, a lot of mathematics. But Dave's got a much bigger brain than I do. So That's a lie. We had him do the theory. Actually, what happened was I was originally going to do a very I'm different sorry. presentation. And early on, Dave came to me and he suggested that we do something together where he was more on the theoretical side and I was more on the build it and do it side. Uh, so I thought that was a good idea. So we, uh, we got together and uh, came up with this idea to do uh, something on RF filters. And we thought that it was uh, quite relevant because, as was mentioned earlier by a number of people, QRPers, to a large extent, are builders, are tinkerers, like to modify things, get in there and do stuff. And that's a big part of the hobby. Dave suggested that he talk a little bit about filter design. We come up with a, uh, a, something that would be very common and, uh, and actually build it and see what it does and see what the differences are. Uh, Dave, he brought us through the theory. But we all know that somewhere between theory and reality, things can change. And I don't think anybody put it better than Yogi Berra. <laughs> Yogi's my hero. He takes everything and boils it right down to what it really is. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. And uh, that's a fact of life that can be applied many places. Here's the big question. Why care? Why do we care about this whole designing your own filters and stuff like that? I'm just going to take what was in that 1960 handbook and I'm going to build it exactly as it was shown. You know, I'm not going to design my own rig. This is why. In 2003, the rules changed. The FCC tightened the allowable limits for spurious emissions for all transmitters, including QRP. Existing designs those from an old handbook or something before 2003, may not meet current specs. You can build it exactly perfect, and it will work as the designer intended, but it won't meet the current limits. You may have to do something to that radio to make it clean enough. Here it is. A lot of words. The bottom line for transmitters installed find out which way the gun is pointing. For transmitters installed after January 1st, 2003, mean power of any spurious emission must be at least 43 dB below the fundamental. Transmitters installed before January 2003 must be 40 dB below and no more than 50 milliwatt. That implies all the way up to kilowatt amplifiers. But if a power was less than 5 watts, QRP transmitters put in use before January 1st, 2003, we only had to meet 30 dB. The difference between 30 dB and 43 dB is 20 times. 10 dB is 10 times, 3 dB is twice as much. Those 13 dB mean you have to be 20 times better than you were before. Sounds like a lot, but it's achievable. It's, it's, it's not that bad. And then there are exemptions for transmitters first built before April 15, 1997, or first marketed before January 1, 1998. So if you had an old transmitter that was built back then, you can run it. 
your old HW8, whatnot, you don't have to modify it. I wouldn't put that old Ford spark coil on the air, but it, it just means that if you're, if you're serious about keeping up and running a clean station and having it meet the regulations, you may want to think about adding some additional filtering or at least looking at what the specs were and see if it's necessary. Here's the filter. Contrary to initial reports, it's actually 20 meters. Um, and again, Dave showed us how using those tables, and they're still in the handbook, even the newly revised 2010 handbook has those normalized tables. And you can sit there with a pocket calculator and actually crunch through these numbers and come up with the values that are in this filter. Dave and I conferred, and um, we, we decided what we were going to do in terms of uh, allowable ripple, roll-off, and so forth. And uh, he uh, ran the numbers through the, uh, through the normalization tables, and we came up with these values. This particular schematic and these values come from the program he mentioned called ELSIE, E-L-S-I-E. And towards the end of my presentation and on your CDs, there are web links that show where you can get these programs for free. So if you're not into the type of self-abuse that Dave described going through those normalization tables, there are, <laughs> there are, in fact, computer programs that can help you along the way. And Elsie uh, is a really fabulous uh, free program that helps us come up with these. But as you can see, these calculated values aren't realistic. I am not going to find a 300.253 picofarad capacitor. I'm not going to find a 749.27 nanohenry inductor. But let's see what the real world changes really mean. ELSI gives you the ability to re-crunch the numbers but give you 5% values for your capacitors and then figure out whether or not the inductors need to change for what your parameters were. In this case, it shows some more realistic numbers, 300 puff, 470 puff, and 300 again. Again, as Dave described, with 50 ohms in and out, we end up with a symmetrical filter. And the reason we chose that, not only does it make it simpler, but as I said, going back to the fact that you may have a design that you need to just tack on a couple more stages of filtering in order to meet the requirement. Well, assuming the output impedance of your uh, current radio is 50 ohms and you're matching to a 50 ohm antenna, it's nice and simple, 50 ohms in and out. So you're just going to add something to the stages of low-pass filter that are already on the radio. Okay, let's get realistic. Replace those uh, nice round uh, figures. So we go to 750 nanohenries, which is 0.75 microhenries, as Dave described on his table. So we've chosen a nominal value for the inductors, something we can shoot for, a realistic value, and I looked through my junk box and saw what I had for capacitors and chose some that were close to the values there. Again, we had 470 puff in the middle. That's a very standard value. Everybody has that. The 300 puff, I didn't quite have that. I could have built that by adding some capacitors in parallel, but I chose to just grab the closest that I had. And I had some 287 picofarad 1% uh, silver micas in my junk box, so I used those. So we plugged those numbers, the real-world numbers, what I intended to build into ELSI. So instead of all theory, here's what I got, what can I expect out of it? And that's the nice thing of the computer programs, is that you can just change a number here and almost immediately see what the change is going to be. So here's a plot from ELSI of the expected response. And 
the places that we're really interested in, typically what we're, what we're shooting for here is to bring down our second harmonic of the radio. So if we're transmitting down here near 14 megahertz on 20 meters, we're really interested in how much attenuation are we going to get out here at 10 meters on 28. And you can see from this plot, I just highlighted 28.44 megahertz, which is about twice our 14.2 meg cutoff frequency that we arbitrarily chose. We, uh, we see a transmission loss of about 37 dB. So that's 37 dB below that's going to attenuate the harmonic below what it happens to be going into this filter. And although the spec was 43 dB, remember that you know, your transmitter is not going to put out full power on the second harmonic anyway. It's already attenuated, and we're just bringing it down more in order to get in line with the, uh, the 43 dB spec. So this looks pretty good. This is, uh, this is what we're going to shoot for and what we're going to try and build. Now, let me just back up a second. Capacitors, the choice in capacitors when you're talking about low-pass filters, and we're talking about QRP rigs here, you want something that's going to be, one, able to handle the power that you're going to present it to. Typically, we're looking at the voltage rating of the capacitor. And a lot of QRP rigs, you'll find just 50-volt capacitors in the, uh, the output filter stage, and that's fine. As we get up into maybe designing something that can handle more power, 20 watts, 100 watts, and so forth, the voltage value of those caps typically go up to 500 volts or so. And uh, we keep that in mind. You want a capacitor that's going to be uh, close to its given value, and it's going to stay there. So one that doesn't drift around with thermal changes, a good quality capacitor, typically silver mica or uh, the better quality disc capacitors, what we used to call NP0s are now called C0G. And those, uh, those terms just describe how much it changes with temperature. We want something that's going to stay close to the value that's actually printed on it. So typically silver mica capacitors are good quality disc capacitors. For the inductors, we're going to wind those ourselves. One of the great uh, things about being a QRP uh, um, hobbyist is you get to wind toroids. Uh, I actually enjoy it. I, I, I do. I do. And the reason I say why you're going to have to is that in, in some simple designs or low-power designs, you'll see an output filter realized with something like little molded inductors. Um, but really, you do, and those may work fine for some things, but uh, when you start getting up into the above one watt stage, you really got to think about winding your own inductors. One, um, they can handle the power. Um, two, you can really tailor it to exactly what you want. Instead of an off-the-shelf value that's only plus or minus 10%, you can actually make it what you want um, by choosing uh, the materials and the way you do it. So we're winding on cores, typically, when we're talking about a 20-meter filter here. Here's a chart. Uh, this, I believe, is from um, not Amadon, but one of the, uh, one of the other uh, Micrometals. I think this is from Micrometals. And it talks about the various core material here. And um, what we're dealing with typically in, in uh, HF range for output filters is we're talking about uh, powdered iron or uh, what our, our British friends call dust cores. Uh, they're also ferrite cores. Those are usually used more commonly either for uh, broadband transformers or for RF chokes and power leads to... Uh, prevent uh, the RF from getting uh, between stages. Um, but we're dealing with uh, powdered iron, 
and they come in different mixes, different materials. And as we can see from this chart, they've got different frequency ranges depending on what you're using them for. We've got, uh, if they're being used in a resonant circuit, they give you approximately the range that they would be used across. Or if you're using them for a broadband uh, a transformer, they give you uh, another range. Typically, the most common that you'll see used in HF, apologies to Allison, but what you'll see in HF uh, uh, rigs is either number two or number six cores. And to differentiate these, they're color-coded. Your number two cores are red, your number six cores are yellow. And uh, most of us who experiment with uh, these things end up buying a handful of these and keeping them on hand for experimenting. And again, I'm going to have some links on the end of a good place to obtain these, a fellow QRPer. So what we're doing here at uh, uh, 20 meters is uh, up into the, uh, the 14, uh, 14 megahertz range. We're actually going to end up using um, dash 6 cores, which are the yellow cores. These are rated for 3 to 40 megahertz, and you can see that approximated on this, uh, on this chart here. That's what you commonly see at 20 meters. At 40 meters, you typically see mix number two. And what comes into play here are these uh, values, nanohenries per turns squared. You choose the right core made of the right material, and uh, you can control the number of turns that it takes to get what you're shooting for. And we use this program. This is a toroid calculator from uh, uh, Dieter Gensau, W8DIZ. He, uh, he runs a business out of Florida providing all kinds of parts for QRPers, including uh, toroid cores and uh, other, uh, other bits and pieces. And he has this great handy little program which takes these values and has them in there and calculates for you. Here, all we've got to do is enter in the inductance we want. Not only does it tell us how many turns on the core it will take, but it tells us how much wire you're going to need. So it's, uh, it's really handy. So in, uh, in this particular case, um, we can punch in the inductance, and it will tell us how many turns, or we can punch in the number of turns, and it will calculate the inductance. Now, there's going to be a difference, because on a toroid core, as you thread your wire around the core, you can only ever make turns in whole numbers. You can't do a half a turn on a toroid core. Every time the wire passes through the center, it's a whole turn. What this means is that we have a certain amount of resolution, a finite amount of resolution. So what we try and do is carefully choose the core, not only for the right frequency range, but a reasonable number of turns. By that, I mean, let's say we wanted that 0.75 microhenries, okay? If you look at some of these, like out here, these ridiculous cores here, it takes four turns to make that much. That means that each turn is one quarter of that amount, approximately. So we don't have very good resolution. We can't control the value and tweak it when things don't go right. So what we end up doing is choosing a core. Remember we said we're going to use number six material. The first number, 37, describes the size of the core, the outer diameter in inches. So this is a small core, 0.37 inches in diameter. But you see it's 16 turns on this core, which is pretty good. That's manageable. 
If you go to the uh, the next size up, the T50 core, it's only 14 turns. So it's a coarser uh, resolution that we have. I chose to go with the T37-6 for this as a reasonable amount. Again, because the number of turns is reasonable. On the other side of the uh, um, equation, if you went with a core that required like 40 turns to get that amount of inductance, not only would you be winding forever, but your ohmic losses would be higher. So it's a balance. It's a trade-off as far as uh, determining what's a reasonable number of turns. So again, as I said here, we were shooting for 0.75. That's our ideal. And the program recommended 16 turns. But when I cleared this sheet and just put 16 turns over here, it said it's actually 0.77 is closer to the truth for that core. So there's, there's a little discrepancy already there. All right, what we did was we wound four toroids. Um, I took the numbers off of Elsie and determined that for our 0.75 microhenry, the T37-2, remember I said the red cores are the, uh, the dash 2, the yellows are dash 6. These are our T37s, these are the T50s. This is half an inch in diameter, just to give you an idea of scale. This is 0.37. And these are the numbers Elsie said I would need. The, no, I'm sorry, not Elsie, but the toroid program. Again, the nice thing about that is it tells you how much, and it actually gives you extra to make sure you've got some left over when you're done winding. So that's real handy. So when I wound them, you can see approximately what was left over. I left about an inch or so or half an inch on one end. So this is what the program suggested, 14 turns, 16, 12, and 14, based on the calculated number of turns for our target. I actually wound those, and we measured them. This is a homebrew meter that I put together. I, I actually um, put on a kit. We sold about 50 of those, I think. There's a few people in this room, I think, that bought kits from me. Uh, when we did these a couple of years ago. It's actually a uh, simple design out of a, uh, a New Zealand ham radio club and uh, Wayne McPhee, NB6M, over on the uh, West Coast actually made up some PC boards and I bought PC boards and picks from them and we put together the rest of the kits. And they actually work pretty well. So this is what the, uh, the finished product looked like. It's very similar to the almost all digital electronics meter that uh, a lot of people buy. But we put these together for about 50 bucks instead of 100 bucks, And uh, they work very, very well for both inductance and capacitance. So I took these four cores that I wound, and I measured them on the meter. Here you can see it looks like I've got my 50-2, uh, and we got about 0.77 microhenries. So not too bad as far as the uh, theory versus practice so far. But they can vary. Core materials, these mixes, vary batch to batch. And from one manufacturer to another, they can vary. The differences can lead to uh, inductance differences as much as 20%, in some cases more. How the windings are spaced around the core can make a very large difference. If you bunch the windings together, it's a higher inductance. If you spread them out, it tends to come down. And errors in measurement definitely can and do occur. Again, you look at these and you see how I've spread these out. Typical practice is to try and make your turns cover about 80% of the diameter of the core. But uh, again, as you spread and, uh, and, and crunch them together, you can see them change. And as an exercise, I did that. I bunched all the wires together as tight as I could on the core, measured them, 
and then spread them back out. You can see the range that we got here. Our T37-2 went from 0.69 microhenries all the way up to 0.83. The 37.6, and that's the one we ended up using for the filter, went from 0.67 to 0.83, and so on. You got a large range. Remember, the original target that we calculated from the LC program was 0.75. That's what we want. So you can see, as I first wound them, they were, they were fairly reasonably close. But uh, you can see how the, uh, the spacing can make a big difference. In fact, uh, a number of you in this room have probably built radios, uh, uh, familiar with uh, KD1JV, Steve Weber, and his ATS series of rigs. Uh, the output filters of those, he tells you how to tune them by spreading and bunching the turns together on the, uh, on the output filter. So you basically look for maximum power and just you're squeezing and, and spreading your turns. And again, if you're going to do that, I like to make toroids that are wound nice and tight like this. I think it looks neater. But sometimes I burn myself because they're wound so tight, then when I solder them in place, there isn't quite enough room to be able to spread them out. So it's good to leave a little bit of leeway so that you've got that, uh, that ability should you need to adjust it, depending on your application. In some cases, you don't need to do that. Uh, it just plug and play and it works. But life doesn't always go as you plan. So again, big difference in how you wind those cores. Okay, let's build it. There's the filter. <coughs> and again, it's a five-pole five filter. We've got three capacitors. We've got two inductors. And we built it on a, pair, a piece of uh, a PC board. And I, I used a little diamond end mill drill, hollow-pointed drill, in order to drill out three pads. Uh, a lot of us here are familiar with Manhattan-style construction. The term for this was coined Pittsburgh-style uh, construction. Uh, because it was popularized by a gentleman who lives in uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas. So uh, added his own name to it. But basically what we've done is we've taken the bottom, of the, the bottom end of the capacitors, the grounded end of the capacitors, and they're soldered directly to the board. And then I have three isolated islands here that serve as our uh, connection points between the, uh, the elements. Here's another view from the other side. And again, I had wound these cores pretty tight. And I found later that uh, I had wished that I hadn't, that I had left a little bit more room. So Manhattan styles, I put the BNC connectors on it in order to make it easier to measure rather than have stubs of uh, um, coax going out of the connectors. I wasn't sure how that was going to affect it. So to try and minimize any outside effects, I built it this way. And you'll see in a moment why I specifically did it that way. How do we measure it? We take a known frequency at a known power level and measure the output of the filter. The difference is the filter loss or attenuation. And we repeat that for several steps. You do it at different uh, frequencies, and you can actually plot the, uh, the response curve. The manual method would be to use some sort of signal generator and a microwatt power meter or an oscilloscope to look at the output and actually measure it, pen and paper, graph the results. It's tedious. Here's some of the tools that can be used for this sort of thing. Everybody will recognize uh, the DDS-60 from our friends down, at, uh, down the Atlantic. This uh, is actually a homebrew version of a uh, power meter, a microwatt power meter that was done by uh, KA7EXM. This was an article in uh, QST, I believe QEX as well, and uh, 
Um, for a while, Kanga was selling kits prior to his flood a couple of years ago. And uh, I believe he intends to re-offer the kits again, but I have built one of these, and it's a very, very handy, uh, handy item. You can measure down to about uh, minus 70 dBm up to about plus 10 dBm. So it's got a good dynamic range, and it's real handy around the, uh, uh, the shack. There is a uh, commercial version of a very similar device from our friends at M-Cubed Electronics, the three mics. They make some fantastic uh, uh, test equipment. I've built everything that they sell and uh, really enjoy uh, using it. This one is a combination power meter and frequency counter. The one down here is a digital LCR meter that can measure uh, um, inductance and capacitance, and it can actually measure resistance down into the milliohm range. And, of course, this, as I mentioned before, from almost all digital electronics, the LC meter that they sell. Uh, for measuring inductors and capacitors. So you could conceivably build a signal generator using something like the DDS-60 and measure its output at known frequencies and then pass it through the filter and measure it again at known frequencies and plot the difference on a graph. Or <laughs> you can buy a box. This is the Mini VNA by IW3HEV. And uh, it's an interesting little device. It's got a, uh, a DDS generator in it. goes from uh, almost DC to 180 megahertz. And it also has a, uh, what's that? What's a VNA version? Uh, vector Network Analyzer. Thank you. Um, this was primarily designed uh, for checking antennas. You can hook up just an antenna to your uh, device under test port, and you can actually see the SWR as you trim the antenna and get it onto the right frequency and get the uh, impedance set. But it also has the ability to, uh, it has a second detector port, so you can actually have this thing sweep through a range of frequencies and plot the graph in real time as you make adjustments to the, uh, to the circuit. It's a, a very interesting. There are a couple of other VNA-type uh, uh, devices out there uh, that have come on the market since this one. Some are more expensive. Some are slightly less. But uh, this works very, very well. And this is why I specifically placed the BNC connectors at this interval. <laughs> you go with what you got. Nice thing about the Mini VNA. Connects to the PC. It's powered by the USB can go from 100 kilohertz to 180 megahertz, and it really simplifies the testing process. Sweep parameters can be set and changed on the fly. And real-time scanning, and I mean real-time, it's, it's many sweeps per second on the PC screen. You can uh, adjust it and see the changes immediately. Okay, here's what the software looks like. This was my first sweep of the filter. And I mentioned here... Notice the higher than expected loss at 14.2. We had initially calculated the, uh, through that LC program that the loss at 14.2 would be about 0.3 dB down at that point. Here, we got almost 2 dB. That's a lot of our signal is missing. Now, we could have chosen a, uh, a uh, cutoff point of the filter that was further out, 14.5 or something like that, to try and move that point a little further. But we had, as I say, arbitrarily chosen 14.2, assuming this was for a CW-only rig, was primarily down the bottom end of the band. But again, 2 dB of loss at 14.2 is a bit high. And then almost 51 dB of attenuation out here at 28.4. 
Again, you can see what I've done is I've entered the sweep parameters, sweep from 10 megahertz to 30 megahertz, and 500 steps along the way. And it's sweeping this about five or six, seven times a second, I think. What happened? Why didn't it work? So we went back to LC. This is what I expected. These are the capacitors and the inductors. And I didn't mention before, but I had actually measured these capacitors, and they were within 1% of these values. So I did not expect that any of the, uh, the difference was due to those. But I expected to only be down about 0.3 dB, certainly less than a dB at 14.2, <coughs> and down about 37 dB or so at 28. The inductors were 16 turns on those 37-6 um, cores. And that would calculate out to 760 microhenries. But if they were actually about 15% high and we used the same capacitor values, so in other words, if those inductors were actually higher than I measured at 860 nanohenries, this is about the response that we'd see, which is much closer to what I actually measured. So what I decided to do, I said, well, if my inductance is too high, since you wound the darn things too tight and you can't spread them out, I took a turn off each. Took one turn off each of the inductors, soldered them back into the board. Our loss at 14.2 is now much less than 1 dB, much closer to that 0.3. And the, um, the loss out here at uh, 28 megahertz is again very close to what we expected. I had actually um, uh, calibrated or did a reality check with the VNA using a straight short across the terminals, a 20 dB attenuator, and a 40 dB attenuator to make sure that it was reading approximately what it should, and it was. So that seemed to cure our little problem with this. Case closed. Here's some useful web links. Again, the LC filter analysis software the toroid calculator by W8DIZ, and again, on his website, partsandkits.com, you can buy uh, a lot of things like toroid cores, other parts and bits that are useful for uh, uh, QRP homebrewers. The mini VNA analyzer is sold in this country by W4WB. Almost all digital electronics LC meter. M-cubed electronics test, equi test equipment, again, very high quality stuff, very useful. And uh, no, I don't get any money from any of these guys, but... Uh, I am a very satisfied customer of all of these. So summing it up, simulation software can be very helpful to give us a starting point, you know, get us, uh, get us on the path. Component tolerances, construction techniques can affect the results. And the measurement error has got to be considered. Again, I had measured those inductors, but when I finally actually soldered them on the board, the way they performed in the circuit led me to believe that the inductance was a little high. And of course, initial failure can be an important step. You learn a lot more by failing than you do by succeeding. And again, the excitement is building. <laughs> Any questions? George. Bruce, nice job by you and Dave. Um, perhaps of interest to homebrewers, why did you mount the, the toroids perpendicular to the printed circuit board as opposed to maybe laying them down flat? And that's, that's a practice that I have uh, developed and, and that I just used out of uh, habit more than anything else. However, recently I have read some uh, 
um, interesting topics on actual interaction with the circuit board of the, uh, of the toroid itself. I've seen some uh, interesting designs of very high performance front ends of radios. Uh, I can't think of the gentleman's call in the Netherlands right now, but he has this uh, bulletproof uh, plus 40 uh, um, intermod rejection uh, front end. And what he did was he laid his toroids down, but he took care to actually break up the circuit board uh, ground plane with the horizontal runs to try and help break up uh, interaction and eddy currents. Because the, the common conception is that toroids are self-shielding. But there's been some very interesting articles posted lately on some of the the uh, uh, lists that show that that's not necessarily the case. So I've just gotten in the habit of standing them up and being unsure of what the effect may be of laying them down. Uh, typically a VFO core or something like that where we're setting up a, uh, uh, a fixed inductance and we want it to remain stable, a lot of times they'll be laid down and then covered up with uh, Q-dope or held down with a nylon washer or something like that. But for RF filters, I've uh, just had them stood up out of habit more than anything else, out of some concern for uh, heating and, again, interaction with the board. Yes, Dave. Uh, Bruce, yeah, let me add to that. You can minimize straight capacitance by, by keeping the uh, toroid in an upright position. In fact, uh, if, you, if you see a toroid used as the frequency determining element in a, in a VFO, uh, you, you want to keep copper ground plane uh, away from uh, away from that chloride. So let me add to that about the measurement process, Bruce. Uh, since I've gotten this question a number of times, uh, an LC meter that's tailored to be measuring uh, inductances and capacitances in the RF range will do a good job. Where you want to beware, though, is with instruments that uh, will do a bang-up job measuring 10 Henry inductors, they're not going to work as well in the, mic in the one micro Henry ballpark. And in fact, at the very low end of, of their claimed operating range, they may be significantly off. Uh, yeah, I've been reading a lot lately about uh, these um, LC meters and so forth. There's been a lot of chatter back and forth about ones that operate down in the audio range and and that sort of thing that they're really not appropriate for RF and there's been a couple people has, have posted their results of doing some uh, measurements but what I found quite interesting was when I go and use specifically powdered iron, I can't speak to ferrite, but when I do powdered iron in these ranges of microhenry or you know not too sub microhenry but you know down in this 0 0.7, 0 0.8, 0 0.9 range what I'm measuring appears to be very close to the calculated values and it it's giving me a believable number. Now, I haven't then taken those inductors and, you know, created a resonance circuit and seen, you know, how close they actually are, but they're within the realm of believability. But when I tried to do the same thing with ferrite, I couldn't make it work on these meters. You take, like, a 43 mix or something like that, um, and it tells me what the inductance is, and I put a capacitor across it that should resonate at, say, 5 megahertz, and I can't find a dip to save me, so... Um, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I want to do some more experimentation there myself. Allison? When you're dealing with ferrite, you have to remember that ferrite is a lossy material, so while it does its job very well, I would never use 43 material for a resonant, any kind of resonant filter. Right. Uh, you use that where you want choking action. Yeah, yeah, and that's as I mentioned earlier. You see that used in broadband transformers or 
you say RF chokes, and that's the most common use for that. So one of the guys had posted to the list, well, I tried this with, like, type 43 material, and I thought, well, I'm not so sure that's a valid test, you know. So, uh, yeah, but it's a good point, is that, um, again, and that's why I wanted to mention that errors in measurement do occur. You know, you use what you have on hand, and it may seem like the right number, but you've got to keep an open mind. Yes? Does, does the size of the wire affect the inductance? To a degree, it does, because there's mutual coupling between the, uh, the windings, so you've got ca capacitance there. Um, but the, the size of the wire comes into play in a couple of ways that I'm familiar with. Um, the amount of current that the inductor can handle. If it's too small, you're going to get heating of the, the wire and ohmic losses there. <coughs> and uh, sometimes, physically, how many turns can you fit on the core if the wire is too big? Um, in some cases, there are circuits where you're actually doubling up and putting windings on top of windings, and uh, it's difficult to predict how that's going to behave. Um, but when you're talking about a circuit like this, that's the output of a transmitter, I try to use the larger choices that I have in order to minimize losses in the, uh, in the output. You know, thicker is better in a case like this where we're actually passing the output power. Yes? I'm just wondering if you've had any, uh, any guidelines in, in the placement of the cores perpendicular versus in line the way you had to minimize inductive coupling? Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting there. When, um, when, if you look at a lot of commercial gear and pop the top on them, so to speak, you will see that uh, inductors that are physically close to each other a lot of times are placed at right angles or something similar to that. They'll seem to be a bit askew. And uh, I believe that's done intentionally to help minimize uh, uh, coupling in between, and that can be helpful. Allison? QRPRC uh, Winter Edition this year uh, has a, uh, an article that actually directly talks to that. And yes, uh, toroids are not, as, not quite as self-shielding as some people would like us to believe. Right, right. Yes? You had mentioned that NPO's had a new designation. NP0, what we used to call NP0, people call NPO, C0G. Yeah. You'll find some catalogs still list them as NP0. A lot of schematics will say NP0. C0G is the one you want to look for in the Mauser catalog and so forth. Uh, I believe the N750 and so forth, those are still valid designations. I don't know uh, of any change in those. Great. Well, th thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much.